Welcome, welcome, welcome. How's everybody doing? Hope you are doing well. My name is Andrew Kuhn from Focus Compounding, sitting next to my co-founder, Jeff Gannon. Jeff, how's it going today? Uh, it's going very well, Andrew. How's it going with you? It's going great. We hope it's going great with everybody else as well. If this is the first time you're tuning in with us, first of all, welcome. Second of all, be sure to check out all the content we put out into the internet. Uh, go to my Twitter, at Focus Compound. All the information is down below. That's the best place to get everything out there that we put into the investment universe. Um, if you're interested in learning more about our money management services, we have a fund and we also have separate managed accounts. Uh, there's different qualifications for each, um, but you could get more information on that by going to focuscompounding.com and hitting the invest with us uh, tab. And that'll take you to give you all the information you would want on that. Um, or you could just reach out to me at andrew at focuscompounding.com. So we got some exciting news. Very exciting. Okay. We are going to be uh, in Omaha this year for the Berkshire Hathaway meeting, the annual general meeting. Uh, super excited for it. Jeff and I will be in Omaha Thursday, the 28th through Sunday, May 1st. And Willow Oak Asset Management, which is a partner of Focus Compound and Capital Management, they are hosting an event at uh, Omaha Marriott downtown uh, at the Capital District. And the event is going to be going on uh, from five o'clock is when the reception starts and it ends at 8 p.m. And somewhere in between from six to 8 p.m., there's going to be an investment panel with a Q&A. And everybody, I guess you're wondering, <laughs> who's gonna be a part of this Q&A? Well, let me tell you, Jeff is gonna be a part of it, Stephen Keel, Keith Smith, and Shri of SVN Capital is gonna be a part of it. And yours truly, me, mm -hmm. the voice you've come to listen and, and ask the questions of investment managers. Myself, Andrew Kuhn, I'm gonna be the one asking uh, these managers, these great managers questions. So it's gonna be a lot of fun. Uh, looking forward to it. You could sign up for this at willowoakfunds.com. Go there, it'll have all the information. Register for it. Um, we're looking forward to meeting with you in person. If you're an investor and you're interested in our money management services, our investment services, and you want to schedule a meeting, um, email me, andrew at focuscompound.com. I'm looking to have that whole weekend booked out. Um, and as I said, we do land in Omaha uh, Thursday afternoon, the 28th, and we do leave Sunday afternoon, May 1st. So if you're interested, uh, reach out to me, andrew at focuscompound.com. So in today's podcast, we are going to revisit your singular diligence archives. We had okay. a tradition of doing this. I think we've done it once or twice. And I figured why not go over it again in 2022, uh, largely because the stock market has been more volatile lately. And maybe it's a good time to look at some of these companies. So before we do that, all these businesses, this isn't like the typical buying um, you know, a dollar for 50 cents value flip. These are all very high quality, predictable businesses. And I think these are great companies to have on your watch list for when there's a potential sell-off in the company or in the stock, you would be able to, you know, hopefully take advantage of it. Is that fair to say, Jeff? Uh, yeah, the reports were more on the business overall. It had a little bit about value, margin of safety, things like that. But it was like, what, 10,000 words? Um, and I'd say probably seven or eight thousand of that is probably focused more on the business the industry the quality of it things like that so uh but you know sometimes it was a price was a big part of it um but the the reports are mostly about like the business model and and those sorts of things okay so the first one america's car mart do you mm -hmm. remember when you wrote this up is there a date in here june originally published june of 2014 the abbott hog mm -hmm. issue eight america's car mart stock price at the time was 38 dollars and 37 cents Mm -hmm. Should we compare it to see where it's at today? Yeah, it's probably cheaper today. I mean, it's the the price is much higher, but the stock is probably cheaper on like a price to earnings and actually uh, most of those basis. Yeah, mm -hmm. I think even if we check price to sales and stuff, I think it would probably be a little cheaper now. Price to book, I don't think it's much more expensive. I could see. We could look at it. Okay, so currently trading price to sales 0.5, price to book 1.2. And I know you have your... Yeah, I have a chart there. Um, so it was EV to sales and stuff like that at the, at the time. At the time, it was 0.92. Okay. And we have EV to sales of 0.50. No? Yeah. 
Yeah, so, so much it, cheaper. So the stock looks more expensive. You know, the stock price, obviously, it's been, what, eight years? Mm-hmm. Uh, not quite, but it's basically eight years. So the stock's up two and a half times, something like that. And um, But uh, it's actually quite a bit cheaper on things like price to sales, you know. So that's usually a good thing to see. Well, the stock has been compounding over time and probably about 15% a year. If you look at like earnings per share growth and per share um, growth in uh, book value, probably and all that, if we go like far enough back because they bought back their stock and everything. So it's not far from about 15% because like sort of the return on their portfolio is about 15%. And so they've only grown less. They don't pay dividends. They buy back stock. So they only have grown less than 15% per share if they've kind of failed to... um, put all of their money back in at a reasonable price. So like if the stock got too expensive, they wouldn't be able to grow at 15% a year because, you know, they wouldn't be able to buy back stock at a low enough multiple. But over a long period of time, I'd say they're pretty close to that, about 15% combined annual growth rate. So, you know, 15%, if they'd manage that, I mean, we could see what was their sales when I I had the it go through 2013 was when yep. I did it. So mm-hmm. sales of that year were what? 465 million. Okay, and what are they now? They are, um, uh, let's see, we are on the balance sheet. Uh, 919 million as of 2021. Yeah, and trailing 12 months, even higher. Mm-hmm. 1.1 right? 1. 1 billion. 1.1 1 billion, yeah. And then uh, share counts probably also come down during that time. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so you have it right here from 2013. I mean, diluted shares outstanding 10 million and now it's 7 million. Yeah. So obviously on a per share basis, sales of per share have gone up quite a bit. Yeah. Because, I mean, so the business is more than doubled, uh, quite a bit more than doubled anyway. And then it's also cut a share count by a lot. What originally appealed you or, or I guess drew you into Carmart to want to do a report on it? That's a good question. Um, I think uh, I would guess that it was mainly not my idea. Um, so I did single diligence with another person and they did all the notes and things like that for it. A lot of the research, we picked the stock in the beginning, they do a bunch of research, then I do stuff at the end, all that. Um, and I would guess that this would be one of the ones that he picked originally as being interested in. Um, we eventually did more bank stuff. And so this had probably some appeal as it was a financial thing really, but it's tied to car things. Obviously it has like a very specific business model. There aren't a lot of buy here, pay here type car dealers um, that are traded publicly. Um, this was also in a part of the country. It's a relatively small part of the country kind of more unique that way. It's easy to analyze from the perspective of what the the balance sheet does and all that. Um, uh, Because they have the receivables on it, so you can very easily see kind of the loan book. Um, I also think probably uh, the fact that it was buying back stock over a long period of time. So not paying dividends and just buying back stock is extremely rare. You just don't find companies that are like that. Uh, you know, either companies just buy back stock to offset dilution and they don't pay dividends. You see that plenty. Um, and then you see companies that do both, but that definitely would appeal to us. Um, so you could see, you know, the rates that they charge on their loans and stuff are like 15%. And, um, you see them buying back stock. So pretty simple to figure out whether it's a good enough business. Because uh, you just had to figure out they're really reinvesting more and more in buying back their own stock. And uh, they're re- uh, just reinvesting in the loans that they're making at pretty much the same um, kind of terms over time. We've talked a lot about the stock before. I don't know that the it's as safe as it was before in the sense that I think the terms have extended more and all that. But there's inflation now and that complicates things. I don't think they'll have a lot of charge-offs, but... I just think in the long run, maybe there's been a little more competition. They've talked about securitizing. That's something that they might do. And mm-hmm. they've talked about being more sales oriented. Those are two things that kind of worry me a little bit compared to what their model was in the past. One of the interesting things about it was that this is in a heavily securitized um, industry. I think collections is important. They've said that they're a collection focused company in the past. They want to be more sales focused in the future. 
Um, the more securitized something becomes, the more commoditized it becomes. And, you know, we'll see in the long run if this becomes a less attractive business. Uh, they might outgrow their niche, too. Obviously, it's a pretty small company. If you think about selling cars and you're only doing a billion sure. a year. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Is this a company that you would be interested in at the right price even today, though? Or are those mm-hmm. real concerns that you just outlined that kind of put no, it in I'd the be hard in, I'd be interested. I think it's more attractive than most stocks today. And it's funny, too, that this stock is, I mean, like what, 50% cheaper almost um, from when you first up, uh, wrote up the stock. Yeah. Now, since the pandemic, it did have an unusually good growth period. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think you'd be, it, ha, it hasn't, uh, it hasn't benefited them as much as it would someone who's just a car dealer, actually. So, uh, no, I think it's actually very attractive. Um, compared to, I mean, you can actually look, there's some like mediocre credit card companies and stuff that traded almost twice on a price to earnings basis and maybe even a little bit more. The one thing I guess is people look at price to book, Mm -hmm. right? And so this is above book, but to be fair about that. Um, and then there was always been this argument, uh, that people make, which is you should buy it at like the, the, uh, below the average price, the average multiples trade out in the past. So obviously PE and things like that, it's cheap now. But the argument would be at times that like, well, price to book, it's actually been pretty low. So you want to buy it pretty low. But if you look at a long-term chart, um, it's far outperformed. Do you have, can you do a chart where you can show the long-term stock chart so yeah. I can give go. you an idea? We got it on, um, over the counter markets. Yeah. So if you compare that to the S&P 500, which you just click compare and then, yeah, the bottom one. All right. This is why I don't think it's relevant what it's traded in the past because it's always been underpriced. So we have a chart here that goes back how far? 20... It goes uh, back to, it looks like 1992. Okay. All right. So almost 30 years, this chart goes. And what's the percentage gain in the S&P 500? 900%. And what is it in Carmart? 20,674. Right. And like... Big difference. Basically, from the time you bought it, you'd be ahead in Carmart, and it's never close that the S&P would ever get remotely close to catching up to it. Now you could look and you could do over short periods of time, be like, yeah. well, over the last five years, it's only just barely outperformed. I mean, it's still outperformed it, right? So it, over the last five years, S&P 500, 78%, CarMart, 143%. So significant outperformance. And not only that, but again, if you bought five years ago, what days would you have been behind at any point? I'm trying to see, did it happen in COVID? No, it was still ahead of COVID. Yeah. So it's, I mean, it's just very, it's not that we're just picking the exact right dates. We picked a 30 year date and a five year date. They're kind of arbitrary, but um, yeah. So if you pick a shorter date, we can see underperformance over two years or something like that, but that's not really relevant um, to me. I mean, five years to me is way too short too, uh, because if you think about it, what's the S and P 500s PE three, four times the P of this stock. Mm -hmm. What's its price to book? What's its price to sales? It's extremely, I mean, the S&P 500 is way more expensive than CarMart and CarMart has a better history of providing returns in the past. So I was going to say, so what does that tell you then when there's this huge discrepancy, but a company like CarMart doesn't trade anywhere near the multiple? Does that mean that all of the growth in the stock has come from the internal generation of the company as opposed to multiple expansion? Yeah, of course. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, I think the stock chart thing is just useful to learn about a company over a long period of time. Um, I have no problem with a stock underperforming uh, the S&P 500 over a long period of time. If you can figure out why it happened, if the business has changed, whatever, and just outperform because it's more expensive doesn't help. But this is pretty easy because it's much cheaper. Mm -hmm. You can see in the, um, if we look at like uh, QuickFS, right? So if we, can we look at the 20 year? Yeah, sure. So if we look at the 20 year, we can get some idea of how much of this performance over 20, 30 years is from expansion in the multiples. So if we look, um, we've got, uh, let's see, if you go to the, it's going to open up. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So if you go to the, uh, let's say ratios, let's try ratios. Yeah, this will work. So if you go down, you can see market cap and all that right at the bottom. Does it yep. use market mm-hmm. cap and the price multiples? Okay. So market cap, this was a small company at one time, right? Yep. 93 million. Okay. So market cap's up 10 times or something. Mm-hmm. All right. In 20 years or 19 years. Um, but you can see that the stock is actually up more than that, right? The stock's up closer to 18, 19 times. I don't know, closer to 20 times. Almost half of it's come from 
shared declines, you know, share uh, outstanding declines. Yeah. And half from growth in the company. Uh, that is, you know, um, shares outstanding declines is what you're saying. Shares outstanding yeah. decline and drove. So let's say it's been close to a 20 bag. Let's say it's 18. I don't know how much of a bag uh, bagger it is, but well, not anymore because it's dropped. Right. So that was at its peak. So now we're talking about something that's only up 10, 11 times. Yeah, because it's 557 million market cap now. Yeah, so it's only up 11 or whatever times. So that means that the company's only increased. Actually, that means the company's increase has basically driven all of it. Right? Mm -hmm. We can look. What was the price multiple 20 years ago? Um, price to earnings, it's, I mean, negative. Price to book, 1.7 times. Price to sales, 0.73. So it's actually declined. Yeah, because it's a 0.5 now. Right. So anyway, you've had a stock that over 20 years, so over 20 years is still up, what, 11 times? Mm -hmm. Something like that, the stock price? Yeah. It was $8, yeah. So it's up 11 times or something over 20 years, and that's with declines in the actual uh, multiples. Because you can see, if we, the easiest one to look at is uh, tangible book value. You have that in the per share figures in the bottom line. Mm -hmm. So it's a pretty good gu gu guide to um, how much the business has actually grown per share. So what was it 20 years ago? five dollars and 18 cents and today it's getting close to six yeah mm -hmm. yeah so um you know that's a pretty good number when you compare it to the SP. so the internal rate of is, the performance has been better than you know the market generally so it's been underpriced mm -hmm. um however you do have to keep in mind that is driven by the performance of the stock long term or the performance of things like tangible book value growth has been helped by the fact the stock was relatively cheap most of the time. Uh, that's very important, actually. See, if they'd done major buybacks when the stock was expensive, this wouldn't work. So, because we talked about this before, but that means they would have had to grow their actual business a lot more. So a huge advantage for this stock over the time it's been listed is that it's been relatively cheap. And we can see that if we look at the average price to earnings, for instance. Um, I think price to book is more useful, but price to earnings, if you look at the bottom, you know, it's rarely had years where it's expensive, mm -hmm. right? Yeah, I mean, certainly cheaper than even, yeah, I mean, we have 18 and a half times in what year was that? 2016. But yeah. other than that, it's always been 10 and below or kind the of around there. Easiest way to do this is if you just highlight price to book there for all 20 years. If yeah. you highlight them, uh, you, this will give you the average. Uh, you want me to take the average? Yeah, I mean, you could if Excel will automatically do it if you select all of the cells. One point seven six percent. Okay. Or one point seven six. Okay, and then if you go to return on equity, which is up in the top section, you can highlight it for the same years. Um, if you just select those twenty cells, it'll give you the average. It has one negative year, right? Uh, so what's the average though? Um, let's see. I'll do the whole thing. That will be thirteen point four percent. Okay, so you have a 13.4% return equity over the 20-year average, and what's your uh, price-to-book average been? 1.76 times. Okay, so you can see from that that your average earnings yield has been fairly low, actually. Um, so you can divide one into the other, basically. So if you, you know, so if you think about this, you divide 13 into 1.75, 1.76 in this case, and then you would just have to invert that and you get the number. What it means basically is the stock is probably traded around 12 to 13 times normalized earnings on average for 20 years, right? Mm -hmm. So if you just bought back the stock on a random day, you'd be buying back at 12 or 13 times earnings. If your stock instead tended to trade at 30 times earnings, then you'd have a real problem, sure, mm -hmm. right? The buybacks wouldn't be that effective, mm -hmm. but the buybacks here are very effective. Um, now you could just pay it all out in dividends and if there weren't taxes and things like that, it's not necessarily that there'd be a huge difference for you. You would just receive it in dividends instead of having it back in the business. There's probably not a huge difference in terms of what your returns would be, but, um, it, but you know, it, the other thing with buybacks is it allows you to alter it a lot. So like if we go to the, um, whether it's cash flow statement, that, that's probably a good one to look at. So we see the actual buyback size. With dividends, unless you did special dividends all the time, which they could do, um, it's hard to make it very lumpy. You have regular dividends, you know. But the good thing about buybacks is that you can use all of your available cash to get back down to whatever um, leverage ratio you want. So if you have a year where you're like in the pandemic, right, coming out of it, they 
bought back barely anything because they actually had to grow their balance sheet a lot. Mm-hmm. But then um, a few years earlier, they would buy back a lot more. Because if we see in 2021, they bought back a low amount, right? 10 million? 10 so, million. 10 million. But if you look, their change in working capital was 300 some million, right? Yep, 358 million. Right. Whereas a few years before that, their their change in working capital was half that amount probably. And so their buyback could be a lot bigger. Um, so that helps a lot. So this is very dependent on that. So you'd have to watch their capital allocation. But yeah, fairly cheap stock. I think it's a fairly good business, but you have to read the annual report about the business and see if it's changed over the, what, eight years or something since they wrote it up. Um, cool. Um, Arc Restaurants. Yeah. So you wrote this one up. It looks like March This one definitely has not done well. No. The stock. Mm-mm. Uh-uh. And it goes back to even before I wrote it up. Even by the time I wrote it up, it hadn't performed that well. It really peaked around the time of the financial crisis. Um, their business model has kind of changed as well, right? Their business model fair. since the time I wrote it up has radically changed. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. No, it, um, it hadn't changed that much at that time. Yeah. And when you look at like these numbers, like from a factor, like position, like the gross profit, the stability in the margins, the EBITDA, mm-hmm. the EBIT, I mean, it looks very much, I mean, you have the variation right here in the standard deviation. Yeah. Very low. Right. And, and I should also say like, um, we're going to look at the stock chart and talk about the stock and everything, but um, pays a lot in dividends. Mm-hmm. So if you actually add it up over 10 years or something, so you add up the time since I wrote it to today or whatever, um, a significant amount has been paid on dividends. So it's not like you've actually had a large capital loss without any dividends. Until COVID, they're paying dividends all the time. Their old rate, do you have quick FS for it? I do. Uh, their old rate, what was their dividends per share before? Um, it was about $1 about for 10 yeah. years. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, at least 10 years. So, I mean, you add that up, it's actually, although it looks like you've lost $5 a share or whatever in the stock, you've actually, um, been paid $10 or something in, in, um, dividends during that time, or you would have, if the pandemic hadn't happened. Um, it's very cheap, right? So there's a few factors in here. Um, one, it probably doesn't get enough credit for the real estate that it owns now, which is different from leasing things. It owns outright some restaurants. And you could probably do a sale and lease back of that, or you could do other things in terms of the structure that they're not really getting credit for the fact that they actually own restaurants. They're definitely being priced like they lease all their restaurants, which isn't true anymore. They also have part of a sports book, um, which made a tiny bit of money. Um, the only distribution they got from it basically is to cover taxes. So we know that, it, you know, we can figure out from that how much it's probably making because it would only need to pay that amount in taxes for their share if they were making X amount, you know, it's not hard to figure out. So the, um, which is the uh, Meadowlands. And if you're into the, you know, wanting to have an investment in online gambling stuff, basically that's uh, sports betting. That's the way to do it. Um, You can possibly make money off that if that continues to grow. But New York has greatly increased theirs. So I don't know if that will continue to be the case. New Jersey had been the biggest state. Significant insider ownership. Yeah. This is the company where I really always like to listen or read the transcripts just to kind of get an idea of like customer behavior, what's going on in like hospitality, because it's always usually a pretty colorful conference call, I would say. Yeah. And then the really big one is if there was ever to be a casino in Meadowlands, because right all that there that's there is a sports book. Basically it's a, um, what do you call it? Uh, it's a horse racing track. Um, but the, uh, not, not thoroughbred horse racing though. Um, so the whole point of it economically, the only thing that makes any money is the sports book, but they have uh, rights for food and beverage there. If they ever build a casino, uh, for all the food and beverage, except if there's a hard rock put there, cause hard rocks a partner. Um, uh, so they get to have a hard rock cafe if they want one. Um, and then uh, they also have an equity ownership. They have an equity ownership in the entity that would be developing the casino if they did that. So basically, looks cheap today. They've changed their business model since you've written this up. They've also started going to Florida for a lot of restaurants. And then yeah, they the have yep. a call option on this Meadowlands project, basically, if they want to put a casino there. But they also have a sports book. Right. Well, they want to put a casino there, but the they state's not letting proof, them. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, if the yeah, presumably if the state, given that they have the food and beverage rights, 
and that they have whatever it is eight i forget how what they've been diluted down to now it might be seven percent or something they were in the high single digits or something and then there's some dilution over time but let's say and they own seven percent or whatever of the uh before future dilution of the um casino obviously or not obviously but i would assume that the what's the market cap on the stock 61 million okay ev says 65 or something like that it you know that if they developed a casino presumably that would be worth more than the company selling for right now probably the entire casino or are you talk you speaking about the sports their, book the okay, fact, so their oh, share no, of it all the casino will be worth and that yeah uh, huge yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. okay but their percentage, right, I'm assuming their percentage has to be diluted down further because mm-hmm. either they get called for more capital, they sell out, or they um, are diluted. There's no way you're going to develop a casino while leaving them with the stake that they have, I think, without it's, having to put more into it. This is actually kind of a special situation, I would say, this company. You're buying into a business that isn't that cheap, is run by, I mean, you call it But by the way, operator. all these things except for the sports betting... We're all true when I wrote the report eight yeah. years ago or whatever. Uh-huh. I mean, they've changed in terms of buying the, um, they've lost Land. more leases in the North and bought more things in the South outright. Uh, and then there was a change because of COVID with their dividend and that changed their balance sheet. So financially they're more, uh, they're stronger now financially, you could say with land and things like that. And just in general. And also they have that, that's investment and all that. But uh, so, so there's been some changes, but most of the things we're talking about were true back then. Because remember, this was voted down, this project. It went to voters and they voted it mm-hmm. down. Like um, overwhelmingly voted it down. Yeah. Because they don't want to ruin the monopoly in Atlantic City? Or because they just don't want more gambling in New Jersey? What do you think? Uh, both of those are, are possible factors, sure. Um, now, do you think there's more incentive for it to go through, considering they have a sports book there that has been successful does that help it i think states are much more likely to um approve projects like this if the legislature does it instead of taking it to the people i don't think you're going to get a lot of Mm -hmm. if you actually let the people vote on it yeah i don't think they're going to um be voting for a lot of gambling things i think it's much easier to get through the legislature they couldn't in new jersey though that's that went to the vote on the referendum or it's not really referendum but a ballot question um uh, was it mail-in ballots? Uh, I'm, just I'm sure it's mail-in ballots now, but I don't think it was when this vote was on. But um, uh, yeah, and so uh, I think if the legislature really wanted to do it, they wouldn't have uh, had to go to um, a ballot question. They, the legislature didn't want to do it, so they let it go to a ballot question and fail, um, I, I think is the answer. You know, if you had support of the people the heads of each party in the legislature and the governor and stuff like that. I think that you would get the project done. There's competing stuff right across the river in New York. Um, so I wouldn't at all say that this is definitely going to happen or anything like that. Now their business model is completely, not completely, but it is different now. Landry's made an offer to acquire ARC. Yeah. That ARC turned down. When was that? And how much was it for? That it was, was around the time I did the report. And yeah. for like 20 plus. Unsolicited right? offer for $22 a share, I think. Stock was trading around there. I think it was around twenty-two dollars a share, and they said no. They didn't continue to negotiate, though. They just said no. You know, we're not interested. You don't need to make further offers. Next company, Babcock and Wilcox. Yeah, there's nothing about this one. The company's been split off. It's too hard for people to figure out. Uh-huh. Um, it's in two pieces. Both of them still exist and still trade. One's heavily indebted and exists in much larger market cap than I would assume uh, would be the case. Uh, and actually, the other one's gotten a bit cheaper. So the good part of the business, if we look, we could type BWXT in the quick FS. You could see no stranger to the pod. So not cheap, but it hasn't gone up in price much lately. Whereas I'm a little surprised by how much the other half of it has uh, done, considering how bad their financial situation is. So if financial situation had been different. Uh, financial conditions have been different a few years ago. That one would have definitely gone under. Um, that one still serves like coal power plants and things like that, but they pivoted in a way that was towards um, a lot of more green stuff, let's say. I guess we could say that. Waste to energy and stuff like that. Um, and uh, that was a really big problem and it caused all sorts of terrible problems for them. So I actually ended up selling that part 
my original intention was to keep both pieces of the spinoff, mm-hmm. which would have been to keep BWX Technologies and to keep uh, Babcock, uh, what do they call it now? B&W Enterprises, I think they call it. Um, but I decided not to do that, that other part, not to keep it because uh, they didn't just stick with the declining coal business over time. They took on certain projects they hadn't really done before and they had all sorts of problems with it. So it's kind of like how I sold um, Barnes & Noble when they went from just doing books to really putting a lot down for doing Nook, um, so ebook stuff. Um, sold out of that. Same thing here. They really became a very different company. They've kind of changed that, though. They're trying to p- put things a little bit more back to maybe what they should have been before, but financially, the situation is bad. So so that you had big dilution stuff on that. I think you could look on the stock uh, chart. If you look on the stock chart for BW, I think that will show you the correct one. Yeah, it should show you just the stock. So it had a reverse split or something. So you can see what happened with the stock, right? Mm -hmm. So how far does that go back? That only goes back to the spinoff? Yeah. Yeah. So if you see, it now looks like it was a $225 stock, right? Mm -hmm. It was never anything like that. It was like, I don't know, $12 or whatever. It, um, It then cratered and has been down at this price. So it lost basically everything. Hmm. And that wasn't really necessary. I know that they felt that it was a dying business and whatever, and this separated out the good business from the bad business, but they definitely could have carried on um, with the business that they had. It just would have been declining over time. So it's one of those big questions. Um, uh, you know, like uh, people talk about NACO or something. Uh, we own something like that is because of the capital allocation. You have to be very worried with these companies that are in declining businesses that are going to slowly decline over time, like books or coal or whatever. You know, Babcock Wilcox coal power plants, basically the same sort of business that NACO's in. But if they want to go big into something else that they've never done before, it becomes very risky. And that's what happened here. Same thing with, you know, Barnes & Noble. Um, there's no way they would have gone under if they'd stayed in the business they were in. They might have slowly had problems. Um, but most companies, instead of slowly shrinking the business, decide we're going to keep the business the same size and stuff, and we're going to be able to move into a completely different area, like do something more related to renewable stuff or whatever, instead of doing something that's more related to coal, and then they get into big problems. So, Because one of their strengths was coal in the U.S., and the, where they had a lot of problem was in um, waste energy in Europe, which wasn't really their area of uh, a lot of competence. So, and an engineering company, so they can have overruns and things and it can go bad really fast. Um, banks, Bank of Hawaii. Yeah. I mean, we can go through all of them just so you can see the prices. Yeah. Uh, so I remember their name. Yeah. 74, 74 bucks. Yeah. Um, uh, let's see. So we got Bank of Hawaii. BOK uh, Financial. BOK Financial. Um, Frost. Uh, BOK and Frost both do energy lending stuff or did more back then. Commerce, bank shares. Yep. And there were other ones that we considered doing but didn't do. Um, yeah. Any thoughts on like uh, Bank of Hawaii or BOK Financial? I know banks are on a we lot of people's minds. look at Bank minds. of Hawaii. It, it's just more of like a preference of what people prefer. Bank of Hawaii can't grow very much because it's in Hawaii. So it's not like an organically very fast-growing market. Um if we see, let's look at their earnings per share and stuff. Has there been much movement in that? Uh, let's see. EPS. Uh, it's, since, I mean, you wrote it up in what? When was that? Um, looks like. Basically, they'd have to buy back a lot of stock. Yeah, you didn't give a. To be able thing. to um, change things for them. Yeah. Yeah, EPS has been, I mean, it's gone from, let's call it, Three dollars and sixty-seven cents in twenty twelve to six dollars and thirty-five cents. Right, but I think a lot of that is just interest rates because if you look, they had a what thirty percent decline one year, sixty percent increase the next year. That's just due to to net interest margin, probably. What? Let's see. They list in QuickFS net interest margin, right? Uh, they do. Yeah. So net interest margin was three percent, then two point seven, two point four. Yep. Yeah. So. That's a major factor in that, probably. Um, yeah, I mean, Bank of Hawaii is fine. It's often not been cheap. It trades at what two times book, and mm-hmm. 
it's not a bad price, I guess, because what's their return on equity generally? Sixteen percent. Yeah. Ten year median returns. Yeah. And if you look, okay. they have the return on equity in Quick Invest for the last twenty years. It's never been below ten percent, basically. It's gotten around ten percent one like once or twice. The payout I mean, dividends as well. Mm-hmm. So in essence, the stock's been the most expensive the stock's been is about twenty times um earnings, really. If you think about it in terms of a price to book, comparing it to what its normal return equity is. And then in times where we had higher rates, which you can see for a little while there. So that's the thing that's very attractive to people now, if you're looking at this, is, you know, they managed to have, what did they do from like 2000 in the last boom in terms of interest rates, 2003, four, five, six. Uh, if you look at that chart there, you'll see. Yeah, the return on equity went sky high. Yeah. So it's 25%, 25%. Yeah. 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 And so it's more similar this way to like frost, same thing where it's very easy for people to think, Oh, well it's not that cheap. Like it's not really cheap. It's kind of expensive, but it's only really expensive if you count on the fact that the return on equity is as low now as it'll always be. So like if their return on equity, well, I guess, so technically frost did get below 10% in the uh, pandemic. I don't know what happened there actually. Um, why that, happened but other than that it hasn't managed to be below 10 percent ever and it's not way below 10 percent there but uh you can see the 20-year chart and you can see that it's been in the range of 10 percent to high teens mm -hmm. but it has a pattern that looks really bad which is that it looks like it's been declining for 20 years right so that the return on equity yeah return on equity yeah um so you're at like 20 times earnings right now uh yeah literally the PE is about 20, but you're about 20 times normal earnings, theoretically. But that's normal earnings if there isn't any change in the interest, uh, in the net interest margin. Whereas if interest rates were much higher, you would expect um, that to shoot up a little bit. The returns to be a lot higher. Yeah. yeah. Well, if you look, the biggest decline happened in a brief period of time, really, where it went, when is that, 2007? When did it bottom out? Uh, 20, 2009. 2009. So it was nine per, uh, 10 percent in 2009. But if you look, it declined every single year for that whole period, and it had topped. It started decline. That part, there's no change because interest rates didn't change during there. The part that you need to look at is if you go back up, back to the beginning of that period. Okay, so in 2005, let's keep going. Right. All right. What year is that? 2005. 2005. So the entire decline is from 2005 where it's 18% down to 2009, where it's 9%. Um, after that, it doesn't decline. The return on equity stays the same. So the question is, will the return on equity always be 10%? It looks like it, right? If you look at it from that point on, it looks like it's 10% always. So it's 10% always, you're paying 20 times earnings for the stock. So about the same you're paying for the market probably. You know, that's 20 times trailing earnings, probably S&P 500 mm -hmm. is 20 times trailing earnings. So why do it? Um, because rates were at about zero for most of that period. And if you look, rates briefly got higher. Uh, no, in the, the Fed started raising it there at the end, right before the uh, pandemic. Yeah. And you notice that it went up. Mm -hmm. So you can see that there is an increase in return equity, as you expect, for a period of about two years or so, which is when rates were increasing. There's a little bit of a lag. But that was the brief period where rates were increasing. My point is that if you look, you might think, okay, I'm taking a 20-year period here, right? Mm-hmm. But actually, we got rates are the same, rates get cut. Rates are the same, rates get briefly increased, rates get cut to nothing again, and now rates are going to rise, but it hasn't happened yet. Okay, It's kind of that's, the same story, right? That's all you have. And actually, if you look on, this is a perfect thing. People should go to Quick Rest, look at this, and look at the return equity of what I'm describing. Because if you didn't know what this chart is, it looks like a chart that matches up perfectly with... Uh, the uh, federal rates, funds rate, yeah. yeah. I mean, you don't know how what the relationship what the Fed's is. Doing with it, but yeah. what's happening is that when the rates when the rates are like six percent and even, this company is earning eighteen percent return equity. When the rates are getting cut and they're nothing, it earned eight percent or whatever in the pandemic. You know, but as you can see, it's very stable in periods where rates don't change. So rates basically didn't change. Uh, you know, shorter term rates are much more important to this bank. So. Rates didn't change, shorter term rates really didn't change much from like 2009 for what? Let's say eight, nine years, something like mm -hmm. that. It was basically the same. And you can see it's really no change um, during that whole period. 
the, you know, um, it's a, it's going to spend a bunch of money to expand into a few different places in Texas. Texas is a pretty fast growing place. You know, I, I think there's opportunity here. I mean, what was, let you can do, uh, what do we have? Can you do quarterly? Yeah. If you go to quarterly, stay on this page, we go to quarterly. Do they still calculate, um, loan to deposits for us? Yeah. Okay. Very low. Yeah. So what was loans to deposits at the end of last year? 38%. Yeah. And I think that there's probably a pickup in the kind of lending that they do probably right at the end of last year, but you know, that's the end December 20 uh, of 2021 where I would have expected that it would be starting around. And then if you look at what business is expanding and everything, but it was very low. In fact, um, is that the lowest they've been? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So. Throughout this quarter. I mean, we, could yeah, we can see go annual, but annual, I think it's also the lowest. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, Usually I, hovers around high 40s to low 50s. They were in the 30s during the um, probably late 80s or something like that around that time. So, but I'd say since then they haven't been this low in terms of loans to deposits. So maybe that's something that you don't like because they're not lending out a lot of money. But on the other hand, if you think about it, um, even if you buy short-term securities, uh, you could make money now if rates were higher. So if you imagine, uh, what if you had a two year, um, or five, you know, whatever that is, you know, around one and a half to 2% instead of around zero. Like it was just, it was pretty close to zero just in 2020 when they had poor results, you know? Um, so two, three year probably is like one of the most important parts for them, I would say. Um, because the loans, these kinds of loans are fairly shorter term. And usually they've been buying really shorter term securities. Not always. Some of it it does go out longer, but compared to most banks, the absolute level of interest rates probably matters more. And the steepness of the curve matters a little less for them. I think this is the last bank that you wrote up. BOK Financial. Well, actually, There's we have Commerce, commerce right? but um, BOK Financial. Mm-hmm. Any thoughts on this? And I'm kind of curious to hear after you, you know, give us your thoughts, kind of where this stacks up um, next to Frost and not Commerce. One of my favorites. And Bank of Hawaii. Probably not one of my favorites. I'd say for most people, it's more going to be one that they like more because it does try to grow more, but it tries to go into new markets and grow. And I just think it's tougher to do that. Um, I think it's been hard for them uh, to get really good returns doing that as opposed to Frost, which is a lot of organic growth with the same customers and things like that. Um, uh, Actually, the underlying numbers for Frost are really good when you think about that the net interest margin declined and that there hasn't been increase in net interest margin. The fact that you could have the same Return equity over time is pretty good. Um, It would be hard for me to pick it over Bank of Hawaii or Frost. However, it is cheaper. We have 1.3 times book value, 10-year median returns for return on equity, 10.1. And we just talked about Frost and Bank of Hawaii, and they're both, what, like two times book? Mm -hmm. And much higher PE multiples, you know, same thing. Loan to deposits are, um, it looks like sort of out of, I mean, it's 50%, and that's a low, it looks like, just glancing over They're the history. They're very big historically in energy. So the bank's controlled by someone who made all his money in energy. Um, like Oklahoma Natural Gas, I guess, was mostly how he made his money, something like that. So um, I think... I'd have to check, but both Frost and, and uh, BOK Financial are considered energy lenders. They're pretty big in that. So energy lending has really declined in recent years. Um, it's a much smaller part of Frost business now, and maybe that's part of what you're seeing here. I don't know. Um, or they had a lot of deposit growth, you know, because you had the pandemic. So, Commerce? Bank shares? Yeah, it's not that... Exciting commerce and uh, what's the other one um, that we didn't write up? Uh, I'm trying to remember. Let's see. Um, anyway, it, commerce is controlled by a, a family that they have like cousins basically control another bank that we could consider writing up either one of them. Um, they're in the same sort of part of the country. Um, I don't think there's that much to be interesting with there. What's their price? Yeah, I don't. Two point five times book. I don't understand that. Um, 
Yeah, I have no reason why I'd prefer Commerce to the other banks that we've looked at here. Uh, at the time that we looked at them, you have to remember that the prices were different. So that affected how attractive it was. Like, I really liked Frost at the time that we wrote them up. But um, for, what what was Frost like just stock price when we wrote it up? Um, this was... So... $61.77. Now it's probably double that. So to give you some idea, um, the stock has probably doubled. What's it at now? 138. So more than doubled. And it's important to note, I never would have imagined that it would be this much longer and we still wouldn't have rates increase. Mm -hmm. That never could have been something that I could have foreseen. Um, in fact, they shortly after we wrote that report, they started raising rates. Yeah. Then they stopped raising rates. Yeah. And they had reverse a course pandemic, pretty quickly. And then they waited a year when they had transitory inflation. Mm -hmm. So we never could have imagined um, that it would be. And it's done okay. It's done great. The price is, the yeah, price, that's what I mean. Yeah. So the price has doubled. And yet it's had a situation where, if anything, interest rates have been worse than I could have expected, mm -hmm. not uh, lower than I could have expected for them. Well, it's re rated a lot recently since the talk of rate hikes have been on the table. Right, exactly. Um, and then I also think it'll be a little more costly for them to go into the markets that they're going into. But in the long run, it'll help them. But it'll keep their earnings down a bit because opening new bank branches um, is not, I mean, the, the economics of a new bank branch for them is nothing like the economics of an old branch. Um, you just don't make a lot of money right away doing it. And to enter in completely new cities, pretty much, you have to do a lot of advertising and you have to open up a lot of branches and you don't have the density that you want to achieve everything right away. So it's a long, long-term investment to do that because this, they basically weren't in Dallas and, and Houston as big markets for them. This company's not publicly trading. Breeze Eastern. Yeah. Acquired by Transdime. Yeah. Do you remember what they were acquired for? Is it 18 bucks a share? I can't remember. Don't remember. All right, not public anymore. I believe, is this company public still? Which one? Nope. Taken out. They were taken out as well. Yep, this is Stressless, the brand that they make, which chairs is Stressless. It's Recliners, a, correct? Uh, yeah, Norwegian company, right? Fossil. They still exist. They had problems right away. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think you did a couple. You did Movado and Fossil. Right? Yeah, Movado's very different than Fossil, though, yeah. Movado's um, a value stock. Fossil is not, and it's been, you know, you can see how much it earned in the past. It was a fashion thing. It earned. It now earns like one-tenth, probably, of what it used to earn in mm -hmm. operating profit. $567 million in the past. Yeah, $124 million. Okay, so it, it's recovered as of this year, I guess, but very fashion-driven. They do have a lot of um, licenses and stuff, but much more female, much more fashion-driven. You can see their long-term chart. Look what happened there. Yeah, 2017, yep. 16, 17. Mm -hmm. Got it. So we talked about Frost. WW Granger? Yeah, I think we've talked about Granger before. I rewrote up Granger again for the website. Did Gran I did Granger and I did Carmar because they got to a price that seemed cheap, both of them at one point. Um. You like that situation where the stock price has gone up since you've last profiled the company, but the valuation is either the same or cheaper. Yeah. I like that in some cases. Um, it depends on how much I like the business in the first place. So why are their gross margins much higher than most distributors you come across? Turns are slower. So generally, uh, with distribution stuff, people make a big deal about how big the margins are and everything. But if you look, there's much less ver uh, variation in return on capital. Uh, distributors that turn faster charge um, uh, have lower margins, and distributors that turn slower have higher margins. Granger keeps a lot of stuff basically in stock, um, and so it has lower returns on that kind of thing. Whereas it, the highest margin, the lowest margins you're ever going to see are like someone who just distributes cigarettes or maybe um, the drug distributor, uh, but they actually have incredibly high turns. They don't actually hold on to inventory for any real length of time. Whereas something like Granger has to have a broad uh, catalog and some of that catalog has to actually be in stock because they're not frequently ordered things, you know? Mm -hmm. 
Um, so you wrote it up at $229 a share. It's at $483 today. Yeah. So these are controversial always. So, uh, fast, you can do the ticker on that one. I did not write that one up, but the ticker is fast. Uh, is that fast and all? Yeah. Yep. Um, didn't write that one up cause it was expensive then. It's probably expensive now. Um, great company in the past and everything. I, I don't know that I saw a big difference now between how Granger and, uh, um, MSC industrial direct would perform versus Fastenal. Um, which you also wrote up. I wrote up MSC, but I did not write up, um, Fastenal. Correct. Yeah. Because it was tended to be much more expensive stock. And while I felt there was a big difference in performance between it and others in the past, I wasn't convinced that that difference would continue into the future. Um, I, I felt the businesses were converging more, I guess you could say. It's, but because of the, it's a much more popular stock, I guess. Um, uh, Granger also, uh, I don't know the situation now because I haven't looked it up, but Granger also owns a publicly traded company, uh, owns a large stake in it. Um, it's not that important, but there's a, there's a Japanese company that's publicly traded. And uh, Granger had owned a large stake in it, so unless they disposed of that, then that's meaningful. That company always traded at very high multiple compared to Granger, so it was often kind of, um, if people wanted to, they could of course short that and and go long Granger, um, for whatever reason. I think just because it's a growth stock in Japan, they just have a much higher multiple as growth things in the U.S. is online stuff. Um, they're. These stocks trade a little weirdly. They trade very much based on um, economic expectations. Uh, so you could do uh, Granger and MSC both to see the multiples on them. You can get some ideas. Uh... Wow. Yeah. So they're somewhat cyclical. Uh, it's they seem to trade on the cyclicality much more. So MSC Industrial Direct is much more tied to um, metalworking in the U.S., like machine shops kind of stuff, um, which hasn't been a terribly big growth industry for the last like ten years or something because the U.S. economy just hasn't grown that much, you know, in nominal terms and things like that. Some other things that Granger's much less is less exposed to that, um, so it's less economically sensitive, you could say. Uh, I think it would be better if you were a long-term shareholder of these things. The trading seems to be very dependent on like, obviously people can find manufacturing activity indexes and things like that. These are like leading financial indicators, uh, economic indicators and, um, predict what return on capital for these companies will be. So you can see that the return on capital changes depending on where you are in the cycle. It's pretty easy to see that. And earnings change too, for that reason. So they're cyclical and they're very cyclical depending on the overall state of manufacturing and other things, but mainly manufacturing in the US. Um, so maybe like timing it so that you buy it at a point when people are selling it because they're not optimistic. So what'll probably happen with these stocks is they'll go down. When these stocks go down together, it probably means they're expecting a recession in the US. Uh huh. So that may be when you get a point to buy them if you want to. Um, they, they just seem to trade very much on that. I think they're almost all have high share turnover and stuff. I don't think any of these are overlooked to be honest. Yeah. 200%. Um, uh, Hunter Douglas, no longer public. He went private. John Wiley and sons. Mm -hmm. Hasn't done much of anything interesting. Lifetime fitness and uh, private, private Luxottica merged <laughs> Movado. That's public uh, value it's, stock. It's not right? as cheap anymore, right? Let's see. Let's see. M O V. Looks like one point seven times book, point eight times EV to sales, or mm. EV to free cash flow five point three times. Yeah, I guess it's not. Um, it's still pretty cheap compared to the other watch companies, I guess. Yeah, that's definitely a value stock thing. So you were saying before, like the picking stocks for longer term, whatever things. Movado wasn't. I mean, Movado was basically just it's a lot cheaper. If you look at that, um, do you have the report for Movado? Sure thing. So you could look at the um, table on it. If you look, you'll see on the val yeah that valuation thing is good. 
up in that upper right hand corner. Yeah. Yeah. So if you look, you can see what the median is and all of that. Mm -hmm. um, you'll have to zoom in to be able to see it. So if you look at the companies that's compared to uh, the EV, uh, let's see, EV to EBITDA, for instance, on Movado was five when I wrote it up. It's not much different now. Um, and for all the other companies in the industry, it was, you know, seven to 13 or, or even more than that, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So all the watch companies are a bit more expensive. There's a pretty low multiple on it. Um, I don't know how different it is now. Uh, it seems fairly cheap, I guess. Um, but obviously things have moved along in the, the watch industry that's made it less attractive over time. Um, the big thing that happened with watch things, Swatch and other ones like that, is you had huge declines worldwide, much less so in the U.S. though. But Swiss watches are not something that Americans buy a lot of. Uh, they're much bigger in Asia and, and Europe. And obviously, uh, there's a big uh, decline in, in demand from China. So you actually had to, um, ex, uh, Swiss watch exports decline in some of those years, which hadn't been the case for a long time. Movado, although an American company, it makes licensed stuff in Asia and uh, makes Swiss stuff in Switzerland. So that's actually kind of the business that it's in. And we'd written a little bit about that because there was like a crackdown on um, corruption stuff in China. And we talked a little bit about it with Swatch, mm -hmm. about how much of its um, profits and stuff really come from that. So again, I think that those ones, they performed badly mostly. Uh, for the same reasons as the uh, Fossil and watch companies and things like that. I mean, Movado is pretty cheap, but I would say those things are uh, like fashion-driven things. Mm -hmm. The same thing that I would say with exercise things, town sports, Weight Watchers. I mean, Lifetime Fitness did fine, but you know, you can see that the results for most of these are determined a lot by what industry they were in. Mm -hmm. You know, the insurance things did great. Progressive yeah, and home say. serve, yeah. Progressive home serve. Yeah. We've spoken a lot about Omnicom. Prosperity Bank Shares was the other bank company mm -hmm. that uh, we've spoken about on the podcast a few I times. I think the data's wrong on QuickFS for Prosperity. Okay. I think there's some problem with it. Uh, you can see in their presentation and stuff something different. So I think it looks cheaper than it really is, but I could be wrong unless the something's changed a lot with the stock. I believe that some of that information is there's something off about it. Um, Prosperity is the other big bank in. Texas, so those are two of the biggest banks, mm -hmm. and uh, I'm not sure which one I like better and stuff. I, I mean, I liked Frost better because I thought Prosperity would require continual acquisitions over time, and I think that most banks that require a lot of acquisitions over time, it, it, it's hard. Um, they get too big. It, it doesn't work. That's how Prosperity grew to be the size that it is, yeah. right? Yeah. yeah. Frost does very little acquiring. They've acquired some things. They just acquired to enter that area. They're not usually very picky about price more culture and just someplace they want to be. So if they wanted to be in like Houston or whatever, they might acquire something to go into there. So we've spoken a lot about uh, village supermarkets. So another mm -hmm. name that looks interesting to some people, Tanny Leather Factory. We've spoken about it before on the podcast mm -hmm. and you also wrote it up. Yeah. Um, any thoughts on Tandy? They've well, been going through a lot of changes. Ton of problems since I wrote it up. Yeah, um, a lot of problems, and then with the pandemic and everything, that doesn't help for a company that, although it sells online stuff, um, has a lot of in-person business. Uh, failed to have SEC reports for a while, so they were out of date with that. Now they're back though, right? And they're they are yeah. And so they they don't trade on the expert exchange anymore. The expert um one, they're no. OTC. Yeah, but they're like regular pink or something. We now. could we could look it up, but yeah, yeah. So if you're non current, yeah, yeah they're regular pink. So some people listening to this might have trouble buying and selling securities. Um, if you use like uh, interactive brokers or something, they yeah. won't let you, right? Mm -hmm. That's yeah. correct. Um, so you, you may have trouble if you're, if you're the, they're not current in their financials. So there's a period here, which is fine because probably the period where they were non-current is the period where the stock was at its cheapest. So it's good. It's protecting you from yourself because you might've sold it otherwise, but when they can't file their, um, with the sec, they then aren't current for purposes of OTC markets, which means that because of some new sec rules last year, um, they'll be put on this expert thing that you'll see which is it does look like a black diamond what is it, it does like? yeah, yeah. Uh -huh. and that will mean that like our fund and stuff could probably trade it and you can't 
to yeah, be honest it's, about it. It's a very odd thing, I think, because it's you yeah. talk about like America, capitalism. I mean, it defies that, in my opinion, and kind of similar towards like accreditation rules and stuff like that. But that's another podcast. And I'm kind of more okay with it because um, there's two sets of companies that end up in this category. Um, perfectly legitimate companies that, well, there's really three. There's things like Tandy and some other companies which just failed to be current in their finances for a little while. There used to be companies on exchanges and stuff that had that problem. So that can be a one-time thing. That's what happened with Tandy. They fixed it. They used to be on NASDAQ, right? Yeah, they were a NASDAQ uh-huh. company, yeah. Um, so they were basically about the size of an ARC restaurants on NASDAQ. Everything was the same as like ARC restaurants. Then they end up, now they're on pink. Um, that's one. The other category that you get, which is a bit of a problem, uh, is more what we would buy or talk about on this uh, podcast, which is a company that's perfectly legitimate business, uh, has been around a long time, is probably pretty good business, doesn't want to give any information on it. And so those are kind of worse when that happens. Like as bad as like Maui Land and Pineapple is right now, it's on an exchange. If they just stopped reporting stuff, they would end up on this expert thing and they probably would be perfectly happy with that Mm -hmm. because they they give the minimum of information to talk about their company now as it is, you know? Um, The thing that it's meant to protect you from though, so that you should be able to buy, an individual investor should be able to buy and that's fine. And there's lots of companies that give very little information and you should be able to buy them. Uh, that is not what the uh, the um, SEC is trying to protect people from, though. The kinds of things that we like of the overlooked stocks, they're really trying to protect them from the ones that are putting out press releases and have are encouraging trading activity in their stock uh, and not providing financial information, right? Yes. So the ones that put out and say, we signed a new deal, um, we got a new customer. Uh, our mine came back with this amount of concentration of these minerals, but it refuses to be current in their quarterly and annual stuff. And they, the public probably should be protected from companies like that. That's not the kind we look for. Those are usually high share turnover, penny stocks, and, you know. Pump and dumps. Yeah. So the SEC thing, the good news is, the good news, bad news. In some cases, the bad news is, right, some of these companies decided, well, then we're not going to give uh, information at all. We like going on the expert thing. It'll just make our stock less liquid. We have to deal less with outside shareholders. We're happy about it. Those might be people stripping their company of stuff and things anyway. However, it improved some. We've talked before um, off the podcast about things that used to uh, be that you could only get the information by contacting them and say, send me your annual report. They would do it. So you buy some stock, you say something the annual report, they have annual reports, they have letters to shareholders, all that stuff, but they wouldn't put it up on a website or anything where else. So if you weren't a shareholder at all, and even if you were a shareholder, you had to contact them, um, you wouldn't get information. Some companies also would just give you the information if you talk to them. Just uh, need a little legwork, but no, you're right. There's a lot of companies that were sort of hidden a lot of their finances and stuff like that. Um, that decided they wanted to continue on and not be on the expert market. So and, they yeah. uploaded their financials past right. years. And most people listening to this, I bet, if you looked up a company and there's no way to find its financials without just sending an email and they'll send you the financials, mm-hmm. you wouldn't do it, even though it takes two minutes, right? Sure. Because you just at the, you're, you don't know anything about the company and at the point where you can't find any financials on it, you just drop it, you know? So um, that's what happened with Tandy, their stock obviously went down at that point. Um, the problems are more the problems with the business they had. They did the things that we kind of were worried about, which is mainly trying to expand more the number of locations that they had. That became a problem. Again, this is a story that a lot of these companies we talked about had. They run out of abilities to grow, and then the difficulties that they have from some things of trying to keep that growth happening. And that happened with Tandy. I think it's happened in the past with Tandy. So they tried to do things like um, kind of do uh, expand the size of, instead of doing more stores, expand the size of a single store. Um, But then that's not really driving up the higher square uh, sales per square foot. So I think they've had problems with that. I think they kind of saturated the market in terms of their, their size in the U S and they'd been at that point before in their history, kind of under a different company name. 
Um, well, actually kind of same company name, but different company it was. Um, and so they've done this as like a predecessor before. Oh, and then you, you grow too much if you kept doing it. And I think that's similar to what we said with um, seeing the decline over time with the, uh, what became B&W Enterprises, Babcock and Wilcox. The part of the business that didn't have any growth ran into problems. I think that's the answer to a lot of these companies that haven't performed well. If they didn't perform well, sometimes it's lack of durability, fashion, uh, health, you know, uh, health, what do you want to call it? Diet yes. and exercise. Yeah. Those are the bad things. Um, those companies have durability problems a lot. And then the other category that has problems, I think, because it becomes so dependent on capital allocation is companies that can't grow at all. Arc ran into that problem too, weirdly, because their stores don't, their, their restaurants don't really grow because they're already at capacity. I mean, not, not quite capacity, but they're already quite full pretty early on. So if they lose a lease, then they can't grow over time. And they had leases instead of owning store, um, restaurants outright, and now they bought them. So they dealt with it by paying dividends, which we talked about. So at least in that case, you don't have a big loss because of that. But I think that happens to a lot of these companies. If they don't have any growth, they can become riskier. So looking at all of these companies, after going over them today, if you were to hone in on any company, let's say just one, which would it be? America's Car Mart. America's Car Mart. There you go. Because it's super cheap? Yeah, like price and things like that, I think. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Got it. Cool. Well, I want to thank everybody so much for tuning in with the both of us on the Focus Compounding Podcast. If this is the first time you're joining us, be sure to hit the subscribe button wherever you're listening or watching us. If you are interested in meeting up at Berkshire, we'll be there Thursday to Sunday uh, because you're a qualified investor or just uh, accredited and you're interested in learning more about us and our money management services, either through the fund or the managed accounts, reach out to me at andrew at focuscompounding.com. I thank everybody so much for all the support and we will see you in the next podcast.